Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number six, Numbers chapter five. This is one of those huh, tougher sections of the Torah uh, to deal with, partly because it deals with a matter that Christianity when it comes across, it just kind of tends to duck and cover. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things that, oh my goodness, do we really have to deal with this? Well, the Lord thought we did. So he put it in his word for us. And what we began to study last week was Numbers chapter 5, and right away, this really difficult subject of impurity, unclean, persons and what to do with them arose and we saw three categories of unclean people listed although there are more and the person defiled with sarat skin disease the person with a genital discharge and the person defiled because they had touched a human corpse were specifically mentioned and all three of these categories of unclean folks had to be put outside the camp of Israel, meaning outside the community of believers until the cause for their impurity cleared up. And when and if it did clear up, then a seven-day period of purification was performed after which that person could rejoin the community in good standing. Now, let me explain something that's terribly misunderstood. Hang on to your hat. Ritual uncleanness still exists in the world in our day. Okay. Yeshua did not somehow universally do away with all uncleanness in this world. However, he did make his disciples clean. Okay. We're told when Christ was crucified that two fluids flowed out of his body. Blood and water. His blood atoned for our sin. His living water purified us and made us clean. Both fluids were necessary on our behalf. And as we find out in the Torah... Atonement's not the same thing as ritual purification. Two different things. Atonement, you see, is the price that's paid for our sins. Purification is the removal of the uncleanness, the defilement that was caused by that sin or caused by some kind of contact with impurity. Further, uncleanness is going to continue to exist in this world until the new heaven and the new earth come about. Okay? The only place on this planet that uncleanness doesn't exist is in the heart of a believer. Okay? Yet uncleanness can be reintroduced. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5.9. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. But I didn't mean 
with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the swindlers or with the idolaters because then you'd have to go out of this world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunk or a swindler. Not even to eat with somebody like that. Because what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Here we have believers who have apparently decided that they can just go ahead and continue to live with unclean evils. And somehow it just doesn't matter. Because they've accepted Yeshua. So you argue, but but you know, actually this passage speaks of immorality and wickedness. Where does it say unclean? Well, I have a question in return for you. Do you think that Yeshua removed the uncleanness from wickedness? Do you think that Yeshua removed the uncleanness from immorality? In other words, would you advocate that with the crucifixion of Jesus, he took the impurity out of sin? Hmm. Yet in an odd way, that's the implication of the traditional church teaching on this subject. Although I think that's mainly because they don't know that there's a distinct biblical difference between uncleanness and sin. Now hopefully by now... You've all learned in Torah that all wickedness is inherently unclean. All immorality is inherently unclean. Not because I say so, but because God's word says so. Now, now, Now listen to this passage describing the very last hours of man's history as we know it in Revelation. In other words, this is a time that's still well to the future of us in our age. Revelation 21.1 And I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. So we know that what's occurring here in Revelation 21 is speaking about a time. It's it's after the current time we're in. Heaven and earth is being reformed like a new creation. So let's read a little more of that. Understanding that the end of man's history has come and the kingdom of God is now fully in. Revelation now, a little further down the line, 21-25. And in the daytime, because there's not going to be night, its gates will never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who passes practices abomination and lying, shall ever again come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean shall enter. 
If unclean stopped existing about 30 A.D., when Yeshua died, why is it that 60 years later the revelator, John, wrote about uncleanness as still continuing to exist even far into the future, right up until the moments before the new heaven and the earth, new earth were being created and the new Jerusalem is descending. Only Gentile Bible scholars and teachers, uninterested in the Hebrew scriptures, or the Torah, or Bible history, or Hebrew culture, want to put forward this scripturally unsound idea that Jesus did away with uncleanness in the world. If he did, then what's the difference between the the world and us? Jesus also came to save the world, didn't he? But is everybody saved? No. Because salvation, in a certain sense, is a two-way street. The only part of the world that can be saved is that part which will give itself over to him. The rest is not saved. The rest is marked for destruction. Same with uncleanness. He cleansed us, his believers, from uncleanness. He didn't make the world's uncleanness clean. He atoned for our sin, didn't he? Did he do away with all the world's sin? No. Not yet. If he did, how come evil men fly jet airplanes into tall buildings? How come men kidnap Christian missionaries and saw their heads off? How come some believers cheat on their spouses? Why do disciples of Yeshua still occasionally tell a lie? Say something hurtful, behave in our own self-interest, get angry because we don't get our way. Or we constantly seek to be served instead of serving. The Bible defines every one of those things I just said to you as sin, and every sin is unclean. Okay? There is no such thing as a clean sin. And when a sin occurs in a believer, that doesn't make it clean either. Oh yeah, Jesus can and did clean us, cleanse us, his followers. He can cleanse anybody who trusts in him. But don't think for a minute that we can wallow and participate in uncleanness and not have our relationship with God very negatively affected. Listen to Paul speaking to Gentiles in this case, in this passage of Romans eleven nineteen passage you've all heard before, but now hear this a little different way. You'll say then, branches were broken off so that I can be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Don't be conceited, but fear, because if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell off severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you're going to be cut off. So we have a direct quid pro quo with a threat. If you continue your faith in God, then you're going to revel in his kindness, but if you fall away, you're going to be cut off. Just that simple. 
Many New Testament passages echo this exact sentiment because this is just a basic restatement of the, of the Torah with the newness of faith in Yeshua, the long-promised Messiah, added. Why would there be a threat if the possibility of it coming about never exists? Does God make idle threats? No. Now we're going to develop this more a little bit later. The point is that uncleanness still exists and you can be polluted by it if you seek after it. And if you do not protect yourself and the Lord who lives in your midst from it. And should you become tainted by uncleanness, it will at the least severely harm your relationship with the Lord. So we encounter the issues... As, rather, as we encounter these issues of uncleanness in the Old Testament, and as we will throughout the remainder of chapters 5 and 6 of Numbers, please don't turn your minds and hearts off to this. Understand that it is an issue not only of ancient historical interest, it's speaking to us today. Okay? It, it's often said, what kind of a foolish general would not want to know the tactics of his enemy? We are being very blind and foolish when we think that we are utterly immune to the effects of uncleanness. And so we should have no fear of it because we honestly believe it doesn't even exist anymore. We have many inside and outside of the church even preaching today that evil doesn't even exist anymore. Okay. Our enemy, Satan, has convinced many not to fear God, not to fear his laws, not to think that they have to strive to remain pure, despite Paul's and Peter's and Yeshua's admonition never to think that way. Have fear, Paul said. Be afraid. In fact, Paul calls that kind of thinking conceit. See, this is not a call, by the way, to return to following the law in the sense that it's a laundry list of things to do so that we can gain a saving kind of righteousness before God. Rather, this is a call to recognize that danger remains, that the Torah gives us practices that when adhered to add blessing to our lives, add life, reminds us of God's principles and that sin and uncleanness remain and they are an ever-present hazard to the believer. Open your Bibles to Numbers 5. I'm going to continue reading there. Numbers 5, 151, page 151, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start reading at verse 5, and we're going to take this in chunks today. We're going to read five verses, 5 through 10. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, when a man or a woman commits any kind of sin against another person, and thus he breaks faith, the faith with Adonai, he incurs guilt. He must confess that sin which he has committed and he must make full restitution for his guilt and add 20% and give it to the victim of his sin. But if that person has no relative to whom restitution can be made for the guilt, then what is given in restitution for guilt will belong to Adonai, that is to the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement through which atonement is made for him. 
Every contribution which the people of Israel consecrate, present to the priest, will belong to him. Anything an individual consecrates will be his own to allocate among the priests, but when a person gives to the priest, it will belong to him. We're about to see some progressive revelation here. Revelation that begins to introduce a principle that might have seemed to be an innovation of the New Testament until we studied the Torah. But as it turns out, it wasn't a New New Testament concept at all. We just read the hypothetical case of a person who's committed some unnamed kind of crime or fraud against another person. And then that person swore an oath to God that he hadn't done this thing. He lied to those charged with investigating the situation and he lied to God. Now up until this point in the Torah, lying to God was classified as an intentional sin and was a type of sin for which atonement was either very expensive or it simply wasn't available. Scary thought. But now a momentous new dynamic is introduced. Confession. What exactly is confession? It's declaring to God that indeed you did sin against him. That it was wrong and that you're repentant about it. In fact, the word used in verse 7 that's almost always translated as confessed is in Hebrew, ve-hit-fatu. Ve-hit-fatu. It literally means declare. So what occurs here is that this straw man harms his fellow man. He lies to God about, about it by swearing an oath that he's innocent. And then later he declares the wrong he's done. Confess isn't a bad mistranslation, but by using something closer to the original meaning, which is declare, we see just what the act of confession consists of. It's a declaration. See, here's the dynamic of confession. Follow me, please. Every sin is essentially unforgivable if it's not confessed. Because to not confess it in the Torah way of thinking is to lie to God. Lying to God is an intentional and high-handed sin for which there's no atonement. By confessing, you're no longer lying to God, but instead agreeing with him that you've trespassed against him. Now the sin can be atoned for. Now the sin can be forgiven. The thing is this, see. The condition of the heart was always a priority, even under the sacrificial system. Confess, uh, uh, let me back up a little bit. An unrepentant man who went forward to offer a sacrifice was not forgiven. The sacrificial system was not a forgiveness vending machine. It was only efficacious for the one who confessed and repented. The specific type of sacrifice dealt with in these verses 
was called the Asham, A-S-H-A-M, Asham. Kind of translates to the reparation offering. It's that kind of a sacrifice that was designed for when a person broke a law, injured somebody, bodily, materially maybe, and now he's got to pay a price. And the price was complete reparation to that individual that was harmed, plus 20%. And the sinner had to also then bring a prescribed sacrifice to the priest for his atonement. So when a crime was committed against another person, the usual procedure was reparation to the injured party, plus a 20% penalty to the injured party, plus a sacrifice of atonement. Now that was an expensive lesson. Wouldn't it be nice if that was possible in today's society. A person vandalizes a school, they're caught, they have to restore the school to its original state and pay an additional penalty of 20% to the school. If they refuse, they become the property of the school. Now, of course, I'm not advocating slavery here. (laughs) But is that really, think about this, is that really any worse than having your life and liberty removed and being put into a steel cage for months or years? Who benefits from that? Actually, you know, the innocent pay for the criminal's livelihoods while they're behind bars. <laughs> Strange system. Wouldn't it be better for the criminal to have his life put on hold for a while? Focus every hour of his day on making his victim whole, plus a penalty, and then be freed of his obligation. As it is now, we put a criminal in jail, he comes out worse than what he went in, and all the victim usually gets is some kind of satisfaction from knowing that the criminal was punished. That's pretty much it. Now, on the occasion whereby the injured party was killed, as a result of what this criminal had done, or time had passed, and the person died of non-related causes, then the criminal still had to pay all that reparation to the injured party's kin. If there was no living kin to pay it to, then it all went to the priesthood. Now, this was another innovation that was quite unique to the Hebrews. In all other cultures and societies, unclaimed property that resulted from law-breaking or reparations for which there was no living kin, all went to the state, which, of course, was the king. Here, by God's definition, he receives it by means of the priesthood. Now, from a purely practical standpoint, what's going on here in Numbers is that about 600,000 men had been organized into an army, the Israeli army. And there was this constant bickering and using God's name in vain. And if there was no clear way to make peace with God and have harmony amongst themselves, the army would disintegrate. Now, that's why in the New Testament, this principle that we just saw here is brought forward and it's used to explain how the disciples of Yeshua are going to be able to function as a community for the kingdom of God. It's expressed in Matthew in this way. Here's this Torah principle expressed in the New Testament. 
If therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First of all, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. That's the spirit behind this Torah principle. Let's continue reading. Let's read Numbers 5, 11, all the way through 31 now. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, that is, if another man goes to bed with her without her husband's knowledge so that she becomes impure secretly and there's no witness against her and she's not caught in the act, then if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife and she has become impure for that matter, if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife and she's not become impure... He is to bring his wife to the priest along with the offering for her, two quarts of barley flour on which he has not poured olive oil or frankincense because it's a grain offering for jealousy, a grain offering for remembering, for recalling guilt to mind. So the priest will bring her forward and place her before Adonai and the priest will put holy water in a clay pot and then the priest will take some of the dust on the floor of the tabernacle, put it in the water, the priest will place the woman before Adonai, unbind her hair, put the grain offering for remembrance in her hands, the grain offering for jealousy, while the priest has in his hand the water of embitterment and cursing. The priest will make her swear by saying to her, if no man has gone to bed with you, if you have not gone astray to make yourself unclean while under your husband's authority, then be freed from this water of embitterment and cursing. But, if you have in fact gone astray while under your husband's authority and become unclean because some man other than your husband has gone to bed with you, well, then the Kohen is to say, make the woman swear with an oath that includes a curse. The Kohen will say to the woman, may Adonai make you an object of cursing and condemnation among your people by making your private parts shrivel up and your abdomen swell up. May this water that causes the curse go into your inner parts and make your abdomen swell and your private parts shrivel up. And the woman is to respond, Amen, Amen. <laughs> the priest is to write these curses on a scroll. Wash them off into the water of embitterment. And make the woman drink the water of embitterment and cursing. The water of cursing will enter her and become bitter. Then the priest is to remove the grain offering for jealousy from the woman's hand, wave the grain offering before Adonai, and then bring it to the altar. And the priest is to take a handful of that grain offering as its reminder portion, make it go up in smoke on the altar, and afterwards he's to make, wake the woman, drink that water. When he's made her drink the water, then if she is unclean and has been unfaithful to her husband, that water that causes the curse will enter her and become bitter so that her abdomen swells and her private parts shrivel up and the woman will become an object of cursing among her people. But if the woman is not unclean, but clean, then she'll be innocent and she'll have children. This is the law for jealousy. When either a wife under her husband's authority goes astray and becomes unclean, or the spirit of jealousy comes over a husband and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he's to place the woman before the Lord. And the, and the Cohen is to deal with her in accordance with all of this law. The husband will be clear of guilt. 
but the wife will bear the consequences of her guilt. Well, this is really interesting. It really seems out of place in the Bible in some ways, doesn't it? Yet here it is, and we're going to have to deal with it. These passages cover the issue of a man who suspects his wife of adultery. And in a very rare, at least for the Bible, narrative, the precise words are prescribed that are to be spoken in this ritual to make the determination if the wife is guilty. Now, while that sort of thing is pretty normal in most of the Middle Eastern cultures, the idea of a very prescribed set of words having to be incanted is very, very unusual in the Holy Scriptures. Usually just a very broad outline for a ritual procedures provided and then the exact words of oaths and prayers that might be used are left undefined. Now the lack of this detail in the Torah of some of these ritual procedures is actually what the earliest Hebrew traditions sought to remedy. We have these broad principles, right? we have these broad outlines of rituals, how do we do them? So we must not assume that Hebrew tradition is necessarily an error or in opposition to the scriptures. Often tradition is absolutely necessary to fill in missing pieces of how to conduct a worship service or celebrate a biblical festival or perform a circumcision ceremony, for example. Okay. Now, just like the matter of what to do when a person commits a criminal act against someone then lies to God about it, this matter of a man suspecting his wife of adultery must well, this must have been a reasonably common occurrence, otherwise its prominent place in numbers really doesn't make any sense. If it was all that rare. Okay. Now, as highly idealistic as the regulations and principles of Torah are, they're also needed and practical. Suddenly, <laughs> thrusting two or three million people together in such extreme circumstances as they would have faced out in the wilderness and under what must have been an awfully densely packed tent city with little privacy in a culture where modesty was required but was quite difficult to maintain would have made the likelihood of men and women coming into human contact in ways they probably shouldn't a lot more tempting and probable. So methods of dealing with it and discouraging it had to be established. So verse 12 says, if a man's wife has gone astray and broken faith with him. Okay, notice, the, by the way, the parallel use of the term breaking faith. We heard that a few verses back in the context of lying to God. Breaking faith. Now it's used in the context of adultery. Just as the wilderness tabernacle is the best possible, albeit limited, earthly and physical representation of the spiritual dwelling place of God, so is the primary purpose of marriage is the best possible earthly and physical representation of our spiritual relationship with God. That Old Testament principle is brought forward to the New Testament when we learn that we as believers are the bride of Christ. 
Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Believers, of course, are often referred to as God's, the Messiah's bride. Now, adultery is a topic that's covered at several points in the Bible. And this is because marriage was such an important model of God's relationship with mankind. But adultery was a common problem that began in just a few generations after Adam and Haba, Adam and Eve. Okay. Those adulterous people, though, were wiped out with the great flood. Then within a few generations of Noah, adultery was once again completely common. Therefore, all the ancient law codes that we've been fortunate to uncover, some of them going back to a time well before Abraham, they all contain laws and procedures regarding dealing with adultery in that society because even pagans recognized the danger that it posed. Now when we examine, for instance, the Mari documents and the laws of Hammurabi and a few others of these ancient legal codes, we find interestingly that adultery was dealt with not as a matter of crime, but kind of off the books as a religious personal matter. It might surprise you to know that despite all that cavorting and fraternizing of the gods and goddesses themselves, and all these infamous orgies between these gods and goddesses, adultery among humans was still considered wrong. A very serious matter. Okay. In fact, most of these ancient pagan cultures viewed adultery as an affront against the gods perhaps as much or more as an indiscretion of a husband against a wife or vice versa. Now, most of the time it was the wife, of course, being accused because these Middle Eastern societies were male-dominated. And most of the time the husband actually had the legal right to kill his wife if, she caught her, if he caught her in the act and the husband chose to kill her. His choice. But apparently that didn't happen all that often. Most times... The husband didn't kill his wife, he just divorced her or lowered her status among his other wives and concubines or something like that. Now with Israel, though, it was all quite different. Adultery was a crime. It was a crime. And it was as much a part of the legal code as was murder or theft. The law code of Leviticus made the only viable penalty for adultery to be death. There was no option of mercy. There was no option of a lesser sentence. Which is why these verses in Numbers are all the more difficult to deal with because the woman in this case is not to be put to death even if she's found guilty. Interesting. And I'll tell you bluntly, that most mainstream Jewish and Christian Old Testament scholars say that number five may have gone through a lot of redaction. In fact, they, they're pretty sure it has. But most of them will also say that in the main, what we read here in Torah does indeed fall in line with the rest of Numbers. And so this is not a chapter that was added later or modified extensively. Let's deal with the problem 
of why Leviticus is uncompromising that the adulterous wife must be executed, but here in Numbers the exact opposite occurs. The adulterous wife is not to be killed. In in Leviticus, you see, it's assumed that the wife has been caught in the act. Or that the evidence against her is so overwhelming that there is no doubt whatsoever, and so she has confessed. The key here is that it's been witnessed. The wife's admitted it. So this is just a matter of men carrying out the law. There's no trial, per se. There's no two sides of the story. Determining the truth isn't even an issue. It's a slam dunk. But in Numbers 5, it's a whole different matter. Here we're told four different times that the husband was suspicious or he was jealous and that the wife claims innocence. So what's to be done? Since the custom of the era was that adultery was a religious personal matter and a husband could kill his wife if he was convinced that she had cheated on him and that the law wouldn't prosecute him if he did that, that's what likely happened quite a bit. Numbers 5 put a stop to this because these verses call for a trial by God. Since God was the only witness in this particular situation, then God had to decide. But how's the case to be presented to God? How does he make his decision known to men? This was accomplished by means of a very carefully defined, I call it a water ordeal upon the woman. And then whatever happened to the woman over time as a result of this water ordeal ritual would indicate the woman's, or rather would indicate God's decision on the matter. Now this is where things get pretty sticky theologically. You know, magic or sacred water that someone drinks and then something either happens to them or something doesn't happen to them to indicate guilt or innocence was pretty standard pagan practice throughout even the most advanced cultures. Our own American Indians practiced it. It was also the basis of early American witch hunts, whereby a suspected witch would be placed on a dunking stool and plunged into the water. No doubt this same mindset and belief system also played a role, if you recall, in the golden calf incident. When the gold of the idol was ground up into powder, put in the water, and what had to happen? They had to drink it. Okay, the water ordeal procedure found here in Numbers is almost identical with procedures that we'll find in the law texts of other ancient cultures of that era. In a middle Assyrian text is a law that reads this way. They will drink the water swear, and then be pure. In an Amari document, the dirt under the jam of the gate of Mari, they took, they dissolved in water, and then they drank. Thus spoke A, swear to the gods. This is awfully similar to what we're reading here in Numbers. Further, the basic framework for the Mari and Hammurabi law codes involved a combination of a water ordeal and then an oath that had to be sworn. And basically the concept was that the accused person 
who then drank the magic water, swore an oath to the gods, and if they had done what they were accused of, then certain terrible bad things would happen spontaneously to their bodies. And if those bad things didn't happen, that was proof of innocence. Turn your Bibles to the New Testament. To John chapter 8. John chapter 8, page uh, 1340 in the complete Jewish Bible. John chapter 8. But Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. And at daybreak he appeared again in the temple court, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now the Torah teachers and the parushim, the Pharisees, brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery and made her stand in the center of the group. Then they said to him, Rabbi, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in our Torah, Moses commanded that such a woman be stoned to death. What do you say about it? They said this to trap him so that they might have grounds for bringing charges against him. But Yeshua bent down and he started writing in the dust with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, The one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Then they bent down and wrote, then he bent down and he wrote in the dust again. And on hearing this, they began to leave one by one. The older ones first, until he was left alone, with the woman still standing there. And standing up, Yeshua said to her, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. Yeshua said, Then neither do I condemn you. Now go and don't sin anymore. Notice... That something very different has occurred here concerning adultery. Rightly so, the Pharisees said the Torah demanded death for this woman because she was subject to the Leviticus law that was about a woman caught in the act of adultery. That's why the statement made it clear she was caught in the act. That's very key. Otherwise, the law of Numbers 5 would have applied if there had merely been suspicion. A law that does not allow a suspected but unproved act of adultery to be punished is what we're talking about in Numbers chapter 5. But Yeshua says, go and sin no more, I'll not condemn you. Now condemn, let's understand a few words here. Because they change over time. Condemn doesn't mean simply to find you guilty. It means to set out the punishment. It doesn't mean, like it kind of does today in our society, that it's declared before the whole world what you did wrong, and then so you're stood up, and the whole world shakes their collective finger at you, and you're humiliated. The word condemned really means being assigned the death penalty. The curse 
of the law is condemnation for disobedience. The curse is condemnation. Condemnation means the death penalty. The curse of the law isn't the law, it's the death penalty that comes from violating the law. Jesus was saying to the woman, for his own good reasons, I hereby do not apply the death penalty to you, even though you deserve it. Now, I often go out of my way to explain what pagan cultures did and how they thought, because, you know, I really don't want to do what too many flustered Bible scholars and sometimes pastors do when they run into stuff like this water ordeal for the accused woman in the Bible. They, they, too often it's turned into allegory. And then the problem just vanishes in a truckload of nice-sounding Christian terms and phrases which in the end have absolutely nothing in the world to do with these passages. Okay. What we're seeing in Numbers 5 is the echoes of ancient and pagan practices among the Hebrews. In this case, it's about trying to determine guilt or innocence of this woman suspected of adultery. And I've told you on several occasions that if we're going to understand what's happening in the Bible, then we have to take it in the context of the people and the culture and the times in which it was written. And these Israelite people while being declared holy by Jehovah and being set apart by Jehovah for service to him, were thoroughly pagan in their ways and in their customs and in their thinking. Now, if that revelation upsets Jews and Christians alike, I'm sorry, this is just the case. And the Bible speaks against it constantly. The prophets are always complaining about this problem. All right? And they keep warning Israel to stop it. Now, I want to remind you that God himself made it clear that he didn't choose these Israelites because they were a more faithful people. They weren't. Or because they shunned other gods. They didn't. Or because they behaved in more civilized ways or they were inherently kinder than most. None of that would aptly describe Israel. He chose Israel for his own good reasons. Didn't particularly share that with mankind, what those reasons were. Not because of any merit on their part. And if we're honest about it, Yehovah typically chose people who were the least likely to succeed. Not those with the greatest fortitude or inner, inner strength. It's the same thing for we believers in Yeshua. We were just as pagan and weak and prone to evil as anybody else, but he's allowed us into his kingdom and into service to him anyway, because we agreed with him on one issue, Jesus Christ. That's it. And just as most of the ancient Hebrews continued to behave in as pagan a way as their neighbors, even though they had personally witnessed the incredible miracles and presence of God and agreed to follow the Torah, so do a lot of Christians accept Christ, but other than showing up for church on Sundays generally continue in their same lifestyle, make the same kinds of decisions, look pretty much like the world, the remaining six hours, uh, six days and 23 hours. That's why we need to take the scriptures in total and accept them as they are. They're the truth, the unvarnished truth, and sometimes the truth isn't nice and neat or pretty, or even what we'd hoped it was. 
But just as God used the extreme and evil decadence of the Roman Empire as a tool to spread the gospel after Yeshua's death and resurrection, and just as he currently uses America's wicked, out-of-control infatuation with wealth and materialism and self to fund missionaries and to do other works for the good of his kingdom, he also used the ancient Hebrews' complicity and closeness to paganism to achieve his purposes. You know, God has always used men's evil for good. After all, Jehovah has only ever had one perfect tool to work with on this planet, Yeshua. All the rest of us are pretty defective and probably ought to be returned for a refund. But... <laughs> So let's rapidly review this water road deal. We're not going to be done with it this week either. Let's rapidly review this water ordeal for the woman suspected of adultery. The ritual goes like this. Her jealous husband brings the suspected wife to a priest along with an offering of barley. The woman's taken by the priest and placed in front of the tabernacle, which is what's meant by bringing her before the Lord. The priest puts holy water into a special container and dust from the tabernacle floor is mixed in with it. The priest hands the woman the, the barley. He unbinds her hair. The priest then stands before the woman while holding this holy water vessel. He recites an oath. And the woman agrees to the provisions of the oath by saying, Amen, Amen. The priest next writes down the oath he's just recited and he washes those freshly inked letters that he's just written down off the surface of this animal skin into that same vessel that now holds the holy water and dust. His words, the oath to God, has been put into the vessel. The barley that the woman is holding is now taken back from the woman by the priest and presented to God as a burnt offering on the altar. Now the woman takes this mixture, this concoction of holy water, dust, and ink. She drinks it. Certain things happen to the woman if she's guilty. Nothing happens if she's innocent. The certain things that are to happen to a guilty woman are a little bit masked in the typical English translations because Hebrew idioms are used. The scripture says, most of your Bibles will say, that her thigh will sag and her belly will, uh, her, her thigh will sag and her belly will swell. Our complete Jewish Bible has the meaning a little more literally. Her reproductive organs will shrivel up. Thigh is a Hebrew idiom for genitals, male or female, by the way. Actually, you know, this kind of a punishment makes all kinds of sense. In an act of adultery, by using her genitals, the woman is sinned. Therefore, it's in her genitals that she'll bear the punishment. What this amounts to, in the end, is that if she's pregnant from the affair, the baby will die. If she's not pregnant, she'll be barren for the rest of her life. She's guilty. Now let me be clear. 
and all this ritual, no human is doing anything physically to this woman to cause her to abort her child or to become sterile. This mixture of water, dust, and ink is not poisonous. It doesn't cause harm, but I don't imagine it tastes very good. Rather, the end result is a supernatural judgment of God. The elements of which are visually wrapped up in the ritual and the water concoction she, she's drinking. Now, what can be difficult for our people, for people of our era to understand, is the devastation a woman of that era felt by being barren. It, it, it was the female equivalent of a male becoming emasculated, being made into a eunuch. Okay. A barren woman has lost her value as a human female because bearing children had everything to do with the spirit or essence of the father continuing on in some mysterious undefined way in his son after the father died. Children were also a means to and a measure of wealth because the more children you had, the more work that could be done for the benefit of the family. And since the work was usually either tending crops or animals, more children usually meant more land could be cultivated, more animals could be cared for. A son was essential for passing forward the authority and name of the clan. For a woman to fail in her duty to bring new life into the world was the ultimate humiliation and considered an open rebuke from God. Not simply a sad episode in her life that maybe she could deal with in time. In the end, because it was assumed that a woman was barren because God had cursed her, she was often of a lower status than the other women. And she was socially shunned. So for God to pronounce guilt on this woman suspected of adultery by making her reproductive organs unusable was perhaps second in magnitude only to death for her. And we're going to continue next week by comparing this with the story of the woman accused of adultery and bought by these Pharisees to Jesus to see just what he does about it.